This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Our topic for tonight is the recollection of the Buddha. And in Pali, this practice of recollecting the Buddha is called Buddha Nusati. The term Bud, Buddha, means knowledge. It means awake, awakening. It's not a personal name. Hey, Buddha. You know, it's not a personal name. It's more like... um. That you'd say, maybe use the term president. It refers to a role or a function. So it's not saying, hey, you God, or hey, you, you, you know, person's name. It refers to something that designates the role and the function of this man, Siddhartha Gautama, who 2,600 years ago awakened to the path. Of liberation. Anusati means recollection, meditation, or contemplation. So when they come together, Buddha Nusati, we have the recollection of the Buddha, the meditation on the Buddha, the contemplation of Buddha, of awakening. Six reflections are frequently cited in the discourses of the Buddha. The recollection of the Buddha, Buddha Nusati, the recollection of the Dhamma, Dhamma Nusati, the recollection of the community, Sangha Nusati, the recollection of vir- virtue, Sila Nusati, the recollection of generosity, Chaga Nusati, and the recollection of heavenly beings, Deva Nusati. These different recollections are found throughout the discourses. We find several references, many references to them. And they're chanted very frequently in monasteries as a kind of inspiration, as a kind of practice, a recollecting practice, a remembering practice, a reflective practice. And so if you're interested in picking up the Pali and the English for the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha versions, you're very welcome to pick up one of the photocopied sheets that are on the flyer table afterwards. The chant that is usually used for the recollection of the Buddha in Pali goes, Araham Sama Sambuddho. Vija charana sampano sukato lokavidu anutaro purisa dhamma sarati satadeva manutsanang budo bhagava. So this is basically what I want to speak about today. In English, that says, Such indeed is the exalted one, worthy perfectly enlightened, endowed with knowledge and conduct, well gone, knower of the worlds, supreme trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, 
enlightened, and exalted. So basically, it's a list of characteristics and qualities associated with this one who has awakened to the liberating path. And so, this contemplation of the Buddha well, the reflection on the qualities of the awakened mind, the reflections on the qualities of the Buddha's mind, becomes a practice where we can take each of the different qualities as a whole contemplation in itself. We can use this kind of a chant just as a brief inspiration to periodically just reflect what is the awakened mind like? What is the quality? of this mind like. Or we can sustain a contemplation on these qualities and characteristics quite with some concentration. And in fact, we can use it to deepen concentration right up to the threshold of absorption. We can focus first on any one of the characteristics that are included in these verses or these descriptions. In fact, when I was practicing it with Paok Sayadaw, he said to just pick one that I felt some affinity for, some attraction to. And then later when I had more time, I could go through and include all the other characteristics one by one or any that I felt an affinity for. So you don't necessarily have to take all of them. You don't have to work with the whole chant. It's enough to think of one virtue of the Buddha, one quality of the awakened mind, and focus our attention upon that. When we start to look at what's included and what's meant by all these various terms that I referred to, we realize that incorporated into the reflection on the Buddha, the structure of the meditation on Buddha Nusati actually touches upon all the other reflections. It includes a recollection of the Dhamma. It includes a recollection of virtue. It includes a recollection of generosity. It includes a recollection of Sangha. So, and it includes heavens in there as well. So basically, you can use the recollection of the Buddha to be a summary for and an access point to all the six reflections. Or you can work with them each individually. So tonight I'm speaking about the recollection of the Buddha. And then for the next several weeks, guest speakers will each address one of the other recollections until after six weeks we work through the whole system of the different of the six recollections. So I want to look in detail at what is included in these recollections that are in association with the Buddha. And most of these are coming from a particular discourse that was given to somebody named Maha Nama. And this is included in the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the Anguttaranikaya, Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 9 and Sutta number 10. And Sutta number 9 is just a brief paragraph, so I'll read that to you. Bhikkhus, there are these six subjects of recollection. 
What six? Recollection of the Buddha, recollection of the Dhamma, recollection of the Sangha, recollection of virtuous behavior, recollection of generosity, and recollection of the deities. These are the six subjects of recollection. Okay, short and sweet. It's nice once in a while to have a short, sweet sutta. Now the next discourse, Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 10, is given to Mahanama. And there it says, On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling among the, among the Sakyans at Kapilavatu in the Banyan Tree Park. Then Mahanama, the Sakyan, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to the Blessed One, Bhante, How does a noble disciple who has arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching often dwell? Mahanama, a noble disciple who has arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching, often dwells in this way. Number one, here Mahanama, a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus, Tathagata, by the way, is the term when the Buddha is referring to himself. He uses the term Tathagata. When somebody else is referring to the Buddha in the suttas, they usually use the term a blessed one. Here, Mahanamba, a noble disciple, recollects the Tathagata thus. The blessed one is an arhat, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate knower of the world unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. When a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion his mind is simply straight, based on the Tathagata. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. When he is joyful, rapture arises. For one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells in balance amidst an unbalanced population, who dwells unafflicted amidst unafflicted population. As one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, he develops recollection of the Buddha. Well, since my topic tonight is simply the recollection of the Buddha, I'll stop there. The discourse continues through the six recollections, providing the text and the description of what one recollects, what one contemplates, what one meditates upon for each of those six practices that we'll be working with over the next six weeks. So the first description of the awakened one is one who is araham, worthy, accomplished, araham. What makes somebody accomplished in the Dhamma? What makes somebody worthy? You might think about what it is you respect, what it is you consider, endow somebody as a person of supreme integrity? What is it that is, makes somebody in your mind praiseworthy in the spiritual life? 
So we might each think of what that quality might be or what those qualities might be. And of course, the Buddhist tradition has had many centuries to come up with lists to explain what all of these are. And so the commentarial tradition says there are five reasons that one is worthy, araham. And the first is that the Buddha is worthy because he has totally removed all defilement, even the underlying tendencies toward defilement. And that makes him worthy. Think about that. The quality of mind, can you imagine the quality of mind that doesn't have even a seed of defilement? So he's not struggling to keep the hindrances from arising because he's already uprooted even those underlying tendencies. Think of that quality of mind and how respectable that quality of mind is. He's also considered worthy because he has destroyed and cut off all defilements with the arhat path, with the full enlightenment. So it's basically a contemplation then of the complete eradication again of the defilement. The third aspect is that it says that he has broken the spokes that hold and perpetuate the wheel of suffering, beginning with ignorance and craving. So he's basically freed his mind from that round of rebirths that go from craving more sensual experiences and perpetuating a cycle of re-becoming and suffering again and again and again. So this reconceiving of selfing, this giving birth again and again to self and existence over and over again. He's cut that. He's let go of the craving. He's abandoned the ignorance that that whole cycle depends upon. And so that mind that's free from that cycle is worthy. He's also said to be have it, possessing unsurpassed virtue, concentration, and wisdom, which basically means the whole path of practice has been perfected. He's respected and revered and given offerings by the greatest of gods and humans. It's also said that he is revered even after his parinibbana, which is code for the Buddha's death. The death of, of the Buddha is called the parinibbana. So he's worthy of respects. He's respected by the wisest of the wise. And the last of these qualities that the, met, that the commentary emphasizes is that he does no evil even when unseen or in secret. I think that's a nice one to think about. The mind that does no evil, even when unseen, even in secret. Sense the purity of it, a natural 
thorough, clean mind. So that one word, araham, that one idea of worthy, we can take as a meditation and look at, contemplate, reflect upon different aspects that make one worthy, that make the mind respectable, that make a a person of integrity in the practice. We get a picture here of a man who is profoundly well-developed and clean in mind, deeply equanimous, straightforward in so many ways. Araham. Araham is a really lovely one. It's one that I've enjoyed a great deal because you can sense that there are a lot of different angles that one can focus on. But if you wanted to go beyond the first word in the chant, which, by the way, you wouldn't need to, it's quite fine to just do the whole practice for months and years at a time with just worthy because we're taking it as a contemplation, because we're chewing on it, we're meditating on it, we're letting our minds dwell with these thoughts of the Buddha mind, the awakened mind. But if we wanted to move a little bit into the chant, to to look at some of the other terms, the next one is about how the Buddha is fully awakened And it implies that he had awakened by himself. He discovered the path to awakening. And the Pali term is samasambuddha. Now the Buddha wasn't just born awakened. He didn't become awakened because a guru bopped him on the head and gave him some kind of zap of awakening energy. He struggled to awaken. He worked with his own issues. And in the Middle Link Discourses, Discourse number 4, he describes a time when he was working with fear and he was practicing meditation in the eerie forests late at night. And he thought, he said, I thought, why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? Why not subdue that fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me? And so while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither stood nor sat down nor laid down until I had subdued that fear and dread. While I stood, while I sat, while I reclined, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither walked nor stood nor sat until I had subdued that fear and dread. Basically, whenever that fear and dread came, whenever he felt that inner contraction, that inner fear, that inner panic that comes. Sometimes we experience it. He would stay with what he was doing. He would work with it. He wouldn't move away. He wouldn't even change his posture until he had overcome that fear. And I love that practice because it just describes somebody who was willing to work with whatever came up as soon as it came up. He was willing to deal with whatever he had to deal with. He wasn't going to procrastinate, and he wasn't going to let these tendencies get the best of him. Even something as subtle as fear 
because it's not unusual to be sitting in the pitch dark of the night doing walking meditation feeling fear. I mean, it wasn't like they had floodlights then. They didn't even have batteries. You know, it was dark, totally dark unless there was a moon out. But if he was in the forest and there was a canopy of leaves, it was dark. There'd be creepy noises. There could be animal sounds. You know, it could be dangerous. But eventually he worked with his fear. He worked with his dread. He struggled to overcome all the various obstacles, hindrances, and defilements until he finally sat down under the Bodhi tree with a mind and a heart that was well prepared for awakening. And that night he made a vow that he would not get up until he had realized complete awakening. And he describes the process that he went through in that long meditation, the night of his awakening, where he traversed through the deep concentration states. He attained various um, psychic powers of the divine eye. He looked into his past lives and his future to see what was there, what was there. Well, there actually wasn't much because he was awakened. But he looked into the, the rebirths of other beings to see what ca- kind of karma leads to other kinds of conditions in life. He con- deconstructed all the various aspects of causes and conditions so that he understood the cycle of suffering and penetrated the, what are called the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, the causes for suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to end suffering. And he gained what is considered to be his certain knowledge that all defilement, all fetters, all obstructions had been completely eradicated and uprooted from his consciousness, never to arise again. And when he got up from that Bodhi tree, he had this certainty that what needed to be done, had been done. It wasn't just a cool, blissful experience. He sensed the accomplishment. This is an especially amazing attainment because he didn't have somebody kind of teaching him what to do to awaken. He didn't have a coach He didn't have the structure of a retreat with the schedule. Sure, he had a couple of teachers in the early period of his practice, and he learned what he could learn from them. But they didn't know the way to complete awakening. So after he had learned everything he could from them, he had to leave to go on and practice on his own for him to himself discover this path of awakening and bring the liberating Dhamma back into this world. So this discovery of awakening is what's emphasized with the Samasambuddha. And so when we contemplate this full awakening, we can contemplate this somewhat profoundly heroic effort But perhaps even more beautifully, there's some subtleties here of the quest. Do you want to awaken? 
How deep is that commitment to awaken, to really understand the causes of suffering and to end those causes of suffering? The third characteristic is vija charana sampano, which describes one that is perfect in knowledge and virtue. This perfect in knowledge, eh, you know, what is that? Is that omniscience? Does that mean he knows everything? You know, there are lots of Buddhist teachings after the time of the Buddha that say the Buddha was omniscient, that he knew everything. It's not unusual. Everybody wants to think that their teacher is the greatest, the perfect, etc. Well, maybe not everybody, but it's not so uncommon that history embellishes the founders and the prophets and the gurus and the Buddhas with remarkable abilities. But in his time, the Buddha said, this is in the Middle Link Discourses, Discourse number 90, There is no monk or Brahmin who knows all, who sees all in one moment. It's simply not possible. It's not possible for the human mind. It's not possible for our sense faculties to know everything. Because we experience life and we see life, we know life from certain perspectives. So there was a bit more humility, I think, and realism Realistic, a realistic sense of kind of grounding perspective that the Buddha had. It wasn't so mythical. His awakening, nevertheless, still had a perfection of knowledge and a perfection of conduct in the context that he perceived life from. The fourth is sugato, which means that one speaks only what is beneficial and true and speaks at the right time. And this integrity, there's an integrity here, an integrity of speech, an integrity of action. And I think it's important to really recognize this kind of integrity in speech and action as being part of the perfection of the mind. In the Itivutaka, it says, as he says, so he does, as he does, so he says. That is why he is called a perfect one. It's a basic kind of integrity, right? I mean, we would say it's non-hypocritical, right? Most of the time we want to do what we say and say what we do and hope that our friends do the same, But really, day in and day out, are we always so perfect with that? But we can contemplate, what would it be like to live with that kind of integrity? And to have that integrity not only be just what happens when we sit quietly enjoying our meditation, but it actually manifests in speech and action. That's worth, that's worth contemplating. Lokavidu is the next term, which means knower of the worlds. And this includes, 
Traditionally, the, the Buddhist tradition basically says that it means that the Buddha knew everything about all the gods, all the humans, all the past worlds and future world systems, heavens, hells, all cosmos, and all realms of existence. It, it's a lot of knowledge. But we find many discourses where the world that is really described means the world of the senses. It means what can be known. Or in technical Buddhist language, the five aggregates affected by clinging, which basically mean materiality of the body, where we experience the sense stores. Feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. All the, the, the faculties of mind and body that come together to allow us to have a conscious experience. That is what is called the world in Buddhist practice. And in a way, isn't that what our world is? Your world, my world, our worlds are what we experience. Is there really a a neutral, abstract world out there? Maybe, but we know it all through our world of experience. But to know that, to really know that, I think is quite remarkable. To really know how the mind and body function, to really know how we perceive things, how the senses operate, to really know the world of experience clearly. Not the world that we want to experience, not the world that we're afraid we'll experience, but to, to really have a very clear knowledge of what we perceive, how we perceive it, and how we encounter and interpret and experience each moment of sensory contact. That's a remarkable and respectable ability and quality and achievement to have that full understanding of mind and body which is also called in Buddhism the all because it's all we can know the all basically mind and body I like to contemplate this because it's to me very real it, it takes away some of the kind of uh, religious, mystical. I, I like to read the big books. I like to read the old books. And they contain certain cosmologies and historical things. But we bump into, even in these, enough teachings that keep pointing us right back to this world of the senses, mind and body. And when we peel away some of these layers, we come to something that's just so ordinary and so real. And something that doesn't make us any different than what the Buddha sat under that Bodhi tree with. He sat down with the mind and a body too. He sat down with the body and feelings and perceptions and mental formations and consciousness. He didn't have anything extra. We have all the same. All the same. We work with the same. The same world. Except it's all from a slightly different perspective, isn't it? Each one of us which means we have to work with our worlds. We have to know our worlds. The sixth and the seventh qualities I cluster together. 
Anuttara Purisadamasarati, which is the unsurpassed tamer of beings to be tamed, and Satadeva Manutsanam, which is teacher of gods and humans. These are basically about teaching skills. The Buddha must have been a very inspiring, skilled, and adept teacher. He had a knack for responding very immediately to people and getting right to the point that they needed to hear, but also devising very simple models that could easily be remembered and structured so that the teaching could pass from person to person. The teaching didn't stop with or was limited to just the person that he was speaking to. There would be an aspect that could be generalized to other people. So he was very, very skilled in working both with the individual he was talking with and also presenting the teaching to the person he was talking with in a way that was relevant to, the other, to, to much broader groups of people. So the teaching would be repeated and shared and worked with. And then when we read these texts today, we find again and again that the very same teachings are perfectly relevant to how we work, how our minds and bodies work. Okay, there's sometimes a few changes, a few modifications, little trans- cultural translations. You know, we usually replace chariot with automobile. <laughs> and a few other little devices. There's a lot of agricultural references in here and very few technical ones. But nevertheless... The ideas are very relevant for the kinds of struggles that we face in our life and as we approach and contemplate our deaths. He also sometimes had some humor in the way that he would speak with people. Unfortunately, the translated into English, you don't really find it very funny. Usually you have to go to the back of the book and read about the grammar of these various terms And when you're reading about the grammar of a pun, it is not funny. You can know it's funny, but it is not like a belly laugh funny. But nevertheless, it's nice to know that he was probably funny in his own quirky way. He also had a tendency to pick up on concepts that were being used by people and other philosophies of his time. So it wasn't that he devised totally new things, but he did a spin on many different concepts and ideas and philosophies that were current in the various philosophical sects that were operating at his time. So somebody would ask him a question, use certain language, he would pick up on one of those terms and give it a totally different meaning and spin so that he could teach the Four Noble Truths, so that he could teach the causes of suffering. And so we end up with a collection that has become Buddhist terms, not necessarily because the Buddha figured out those words and those terms, but because he gave new meaning to them and whole new contexts for them. It's said that there are, there's a discourse in, the, in, in this same text on what are called the three miracles. And one of those three miracles is considered to be the power to teach, the power to instruct, that that is a miracle. 
And I think that is a beautiful one to consider. Because it's not really, I mean, walking through walls, flying through the air without an airplane or a balloon. You know, okay, it's kind of cool probably. But it would be interesting to see, I suppose. But maybe the real miracle or the real one of the most powerful miracles is the ability to transmit the ability to teach the ability to inspire and direct somebody from a state of suffering to a path that leads to the end of suffering what is a greater miracle in this world than that the next term we have is buddha the enlightened one The Buddha described himself as awakened, as enlightened. In fact, it's said that after he was awakened under the Bodhi tree, he decided to go share and to teach what he had discovered to some of his friends that he had previously meditated with. So he set out on foot to Benares, where he, he knew them to be staying and practicing. And it said that when he was on the road, he met a man, and and he must have the Buddha must have looked quite happy, <laughs> radiant, joyful, glowing, because this merchant that was on the road stopped him and said, "Oh, you look so peaceful. You look so lovely. What are you?" And the Buddha said, "I am completely enlightened, freed of all defilement, the greatest of all sages, the greatest conqueror, attained to the highest perfection that is possible in this life." Well, He didn't even finish his expounding how great he was, and the fellow kind of shook his head, rolled his eyes, wagged his tongue, and walked off. I think it was just a little bit over the top. But I think the Buddha must have reflected on this or something, because a short time later, as he was continuing to walk to Benares, somebody else stopped him and said, you look so peaceful, you look so radiant, you look so lovely, what are you? And this time... The Buddha, oh, he said, what are you? Are you a god or a celestial being? And the Buddha simply said, no. Are you a magician? No. Are you a man? No. Well, what are you then? And the Buddha simply said, I am awake. Buddha. Can you imagine what that would be to say that, each of you, yourself. I am awake. And what is it that keeps us from being able to say that? What is it that that keeps us, what is it that, that is unawakened? Bhagava is the final term, which means the blessed one. And this basically means that he is fortunate possessor of meritorious deeds from many, many, many lifetimes of practice prior to that birth as Siddhartha Gautama. 
And it's said that these many, many lifetimes where he did many good deeds and cultivated many virtues and good qualities were all done with the aspiration to realize awakening. So he wasn't just doing them for fun. He wasn't just doing good deeds so that he could become, you know, enjoy the bliss of a heavenly realm. For many lifetimes, he had aspired to become a Buddha, to discover the path of awakening. We can, in our own ways, link our good deeds to our aspiration for the goal of peace or awakening, the realization of Nibbana. My teacher often suggested that whenever doing a good deed, like making an act of generosity or dana, or helping somebody who was in need, an act of compassion, or even more, more, um, more um, in immediately in the meditation before you know deepening our concentration or undertaking a meditation practice we just briefly aspire may the merit of this action be a contributing cause for the realization of nibbana or for the awakening of the mind or for the ending of defilements or for the realization of peace whatever it is that inspires us. So when we undertake this recollection of the Buddha, it's a practice that can bring tremendous joy to the mind. I I like to think of it as like sprinkles on top of ice cream because it's like super sweet. You know, It's just really super sweet. Already thinking about virtues is good. Thinking about the Buddha's virtues is even cooler and sweeter. And then concentrating on it as an intentional practice is really inviting the mind to be very, very happy and blissful. When we recollect and think about these lovely qualities, it naturally will inhibit any hindrances, it will strengthen joy, it will be a support for our concentration and refresh the mind. It's also a protection from doubt. As we think again and again about the Buddha, our faith can grow strong in the potential of this path. Even if we're struggling with things that are far from the awakened mind, we still can have a sense of the possibility and it gives our struggles some sense of meaning and context. The basic procedure of this meditation is to simply sit. And as we're sitting, we bring to mind the Buddha. And it's usually recommended that we visualize a statue especially the face of the statue, perhaps, or the posture that we find beautiful or that settles within our mind. Maybe you've seen a picture. Maybe you've gone to the Asian Art Museum. Maybe you have a little Buddha statue at home. Maybe you want to come up later and look at this little guy. Maybe at some point or other you have an affinity for a style of Buddha art that appeals to you. Or maybe you just have an image of your, in your own head of a human face that you think of like the Buddha. 
The the idea there is not to think that the Buddha actually, you know, had that bump on his head or really had ears exactly that length. But the idea is is to have a focus so that we can con- it's easier to stay focused when we're visualizing or concentrating on something. So we hold the image in our mind, but the purpose is not just to focus on the image, the purpose is to focus on the quality. And so we might say the word worthy, worthy, or virtue, just to focus again the mind on the quality. But mostly we want to let that quality resonate within our hearts because it's that quality that's most important. The core of the practice is simply to dwell with the wise and steady relationship with qualities that are worthy of respect so that we learn to gain happiness and delight by thinking of beautiful qualities. We let these virtuous qualities support our consciousness. In that discourse to Mahanama, it said, When a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. His mind is straight with the Tathagata as the object. So just by thinking about the Buddha, we're not thinking about greed, hatred, or delusion. But it says, it continues, a noble disciple whose mind is straight gains the inspiration of the meaning, the inspiration of the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. When he is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. So out of that recollection of the Buddha, the abandoning of the hindrances, a sequence occurs that brings the mind to more exalted states. This is called a noble disciple who dwells evenly amidst an uneven generation, who dwells unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation, who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops the recollection of the Buddha. So even if we're living a chaotic life, even if we're in a, in a context or a society that is agitated, simply by bringing our minds to focus on these virtues, we can find some steadiness, some joy, some peace in it. This kind of an approach is not simply a, a, a beginner's meditation. The question that Mahanama asked the Buddha was, Lord, in what way does a noble disciple often dwell when he has arrived at the fruit and understood the teaching? So this is implying somebody has already had an awakening, at least a little bit, at least some insight, already had some insight into this path. How does the, the mind then dwell? And I think this encourages us. Sure, we can practice uh, recollecting the Buddha at all levels. At beginner level, yes. Contemplate it with aspiration. But when we start to get a taste for where this path leads, that can add even more inspiration to recollect the Buddha. The Buddha taught these recollections for those who had some degree of realization, and as well for people who were struggling on the path 
because it tended to ease the burden and reveal the way. So I'll close just by repeating the chat. And then if you are interested in picking up the sheets, you can get them from the table afterwards. Araham sama sambuto vija charana sampano sukato lokawitu anutaro purisadama sarati satadeva manutsanang buddha bhagava. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.